Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Realm presents Tales Beyond Time, episode 31. Greetings, fellow travelers, and welcome to Tales Beyond Time, presented by Realm. I'm your host, Marco Palmieri, and it's time for another astonishing adventure. This week, we have a very special story for you. Written by Filipino writer and rising star in the world of speculative fiction, Isabel Yap. Isabel's story, Only Unclench Your Hand, was originally published in 2016 in What the Redacted Was That? The Saga Anthology of the Monstrous and the Macabre, and is narrated for Realm by Sarah Sue. Spending the summer with her relatives in the countryside, a girl from Manila comes face to face with dangerous folk magic. Gentle listeners, please enjoy Only Unclench Your Hand. They're killing chickens again in the backyard. Last time, a headless chicken ran in and danced blood puddles around my feet. I can't relax anyway, because of another thrumming headache. So I grab a textbook and decide to get a few pages in by the river. As I make my way down the rocky path, I hear Tito Benjo laugh and a Ling Din Dai scream for the chickens to stay still. I should be used to noise from Manila. But here in the province, every sound is amplified. In a village this small, you can hear everything for miles. It would be good for my review, Mom and Dad said. No distractions. When you get home, you'll be all set to pass the entrance exams. So, after graduation and three weeks of rest and sleep, Tito Benjo picked me up and drove me out here. They were right, mostly. I can barely get a cell phone signal, let alone a few bars of Wi-Fi. And even then I have to work from the village Carinderia. But I finished my study plan with time to review. Besides, I'll be heading home in a week. I hold up my arm to block out the sun and see a mosquito latched onto my elbow. When I swat it, blood smears across my palm. Damn bug. Damn bug. Someone echoes behind me, the English exaggerated. I turn around, grinning, and seize Edna by the armpits. She shrieks as I lift her into the air. No, Atimaki, bloody hands! I laugh, put her down, and wipe my hand on my shorts. Edna is the daughter of Alingden Dai and Manong Edgar, the caretakers of Tito Benjo's farm. I think she's nine, though she's tiny enough to be six. She's one of the few people in the village who humor me, who don't mind the English I mix with fumbling Tagalog or the short hair and comfy clothes that get me mistaken for a boy. On my study breaks, she leads me on walks through town, or I try to help her with small farming tasks, until Manong Edgar or Ling Din Dai shoo me away, because I'm useless at farming, and they're embarrassed I want to help. If not for Edna's company, it would have been a pretty lonely summer. I might never even have set foot outside Tito Benjo's property. 
Where are you going? Studying? I want to, but my head hurts. Edna grips her chin with one hand and her elbow with the other, striking her brainiac pose, which she mostly uses to mock me. If you have a headache, you should see Mang Okat. Who? Mang Okat, she says, tugging my arm. Our healer. It's fine, I say. I get these headaches pretty often. I don't mention that they've gotten worse, or that they only started this summer when I decided to pursue law. I don't mention that I think faith healings are whack, fit only for TV specials and sensational news. He can fix it, she says, still tugging. Because I like Edna, and my brain hurts, and I don't think I can concentrate anyway, I let her drag me off. Edna bounds up the steps to Mang Okat's house, which to my city girl sensibilities looks kinda like a hut. Manong, I brought someone new for you. New? He peers out. His weathered, wrinkled face eases into a grin. Ah, ah, Sir Benjo's niece, the Manilenya. Hello, Po, I say, ducking my head as I enter. He gestures for me to sit on a plastic chair by the window. I can't refuse. Edna perches on a bench across from us. What's the problem? She has a headache, Edna says. Yes, Paul, I answer helplessly. Mom got my head checked out when I first complained. But the brain scan they took showed nothing. Take some painkillers, they said. But I've already had my quota for the day. I decide to just go along with this inspection, since my headache can't possibly get worse. Mang Ogat slaps his hand on my forehead. It's greasy and smells of herbs. Hmm, hmm. He turns to his table, which is covered in vegetables and herbs and jars of potions, I guess, or liquids that are supposedly potions. He turns back holding a glass filled with water in one hand and a small bamboo tube in the other. There's a black stone in the glass. Stay still, he instructs, holding the glass against my head. I glance at Edna, who smiles back encouragingly. Mangokat dips the tube into the glass and starts blowing into it, making the water bubble. He hovers the glass back and forth and around my head. I feel profoundly weird. To distract myself, I watch the movement of a bug across the floor. It looks like a giant fly, but it doesn't have wings. Some kind of beetle. It skitters from one wooden plank to another, then races up the window ledge and disappears over its edge. At once, the pain in my head evaporates. It's a sudden sweet relief that extends from my forehead down to my shoulders. I didn't realize how severe the ache had been pressing against my skull. Better? Mung Ogat asks. I nod. My breath comes languid, heavy. I'm filled with an urge to sleep, convinced that it will be one of those delicious dreamless ones that make me feel refreshed instead of more exhausted. He holds out the glass. The water has turned murky green, with solid particles floating in it. This was inside you, he says, before dumping the water out in a plastic bucket. Thank you, I say, rather awed. Edna beams. Told you so. I fish in my pocket and pull out a crumpled 50 peso bill. Here, Manong, I hold it out. He waves it off, brow wrinkling. No, please, I say. Oh, just take it, they, someone says from the door. Ate Senya, I thought you were still in Manila. Edna launches off the bench and wraps around the legs of the woman entering the house. She looks a little older than me. Her mouth is set in a tired smile, and she has severe eye bags. 
She's wearing a yellow tank top stained with sweat so that I can see her bra through it, and a sky blue skirt. She wipes her face with the back of her hand, while setting down a woven bag of groceries. I came back three days ago, Senya laughs. She pats Edna's head because Edna is still wrapped around her like a leech. Edna's face shines with stark adoration, which makes me feel oddly jealous. Welcome back, Anak, Mang Ogat says. Day, you should stop healing for free. And besides, I think the Madilena has some cash to spare. She grins, probably to show she's only ribbing me. But it stings a little, even if I'm used to it. After a brief pause, Mang Ogat takes the bill from my fingers. He passes Senya, gives her a quick kiss on the cheek, then holds out his hand. She slips him a pack of cigarettes, and he stumps out of the house. She looks at the bucket against the wall, mouth quirked. Your dad is pretty amazing, I say, feeling a perverse need to defend him. Quack powers or not, there's no denying the fact that I feel a million times better. I know, she answers softly. I'm glad he was able to help. Don't you have any paracetamol, though? I bet it's more effective. I decide not to argue and shrug. My longing for a nap is overwhelming. Adesanya, be nice. I like Ademaki, Edna says. I'm always nice. She crouches down to whisper something in Edna's ear, and they giggle. Feeling left out, I glance out the window. There's a cockroach creeping on the ledge. It scuttles down the wall, across the floor, toward Senya. She doesn't pay attention, even when it crawls between her feet, disappearing somewhere under her skirt. It crawls out again on the other side, and drops down between the planks of wood. Edna has to go to the market with a LinkedIn dye the next day. So I take my backpack and decide to try my luck with the Karinderia Wi-Fi. My head feels so light and clear, I practically skip down the road. Manong Edgar waves at me from where he's knee-deep in a bunch of Tito Benjo's goats. I wave back. I know he appreciates me looking after Edna, and I've not been able to convince him that it's more like Edna's looking out for me. The lady at the Karinderia knows me by now. She fills a paper boat with greasy chicken skin, squirting banana ketchup on top, and hands it to me with a bottle of Coke. I settle in at my favorite table, waving away the flies that cluster in bunches, hoping for scraps off people's plates. I'm holding up my MiFi, searching for a signal, when I hear glass shattering. Fuck you, a man shouts, and someone shouts back. Let go of me. The Karinderia lady frowns at the street, but she stays where she is, waving her fly swatter back and forth. I dash outside. Mung Ogat's daughter, Senya, is trying to wrench her arm away from some shirtless dude in low-hanging shorts. Broken glass litters the ground around them. My eyes fix on the knife he is holding. Senya is gripping the jagged edge of a beer bottle, but the knife will be faster, more precise. Hey! I default to English in my anger. Let her go! The man turns. Even from a distance, I can see the veins crowding his eyes, nearly popping with rage. He glares at me. I'm lean and empty-handed and not that near. But I'm the niece of Tito Benjo, the vice governor, the landowner, and you don't fuck with politicians. I'm warning you, I add. He releases Senya's arm and stalks off, still clutching his knife. The look of searing hate he throws at her, then at me, makes me want to run after him and beat his head with a stick. But I don't. Senya rubs her arm looking at me warily. Once he disappears around a corner, she says, you didn't need to do that. 
I can take care of myself, Miss Maki. The formality surprises me, that she thinks of me that way too. I know, I just, what a dick. Senya manages a huff of laughter. She comes over, still rubbing her arm, and chucks the broken bottle into the trash. We walk to my table. You're funny, you know that? I smile. You want some chicken skin? She shakes her head but takes a seat. There's a brief pause where I sense the Karinderia lady watching us. But Senya glances at her, and the Karinderia lady suddenly starts talking on her cell phone. My cheeks grow hot. If she's gossiping, it's not that different from what I have to deal with in Manila. The casually tossed out tomboy, the more piercing lesbo. I've got my friends, my humor, and enough self-preservation to not let it get to me most of the time. It's not supposed to fucking matter how I dress and who or what I like. But I can't escape the blabbering mouths, not even out here. I drum my fingers on my laptop. My MiFi has absolutely no signal. Did you know that guy? I ask, finally. I told him I didn't want to see him. Senya rubs one finger down my bottle of Coke, still cold from the icebox. A ring of water from the condensation stains the plastic tablecloth. Her wrist, where he held it, is already starting to bruise. We didn't even date for that long. But lately, he's been even more aggressive. I don't worry for myself. But it bothers me that Tay is here, that my friends are here. The problem is, I always forget about when I'm back in the city. What do you do in Manila? I study nursing. I'm old, she adds quickly. It took Tay and me a while to save enough. He wants me to get work in a hospital abroad after. That'll make it worth it. But if I do end up going, well, Tay does okay for himself, but... Sadness crosses her face briefly, and I remember Mang Okat kissing her cheek, her exasperation at his work. Then her eyes fix on the textbooks I piled next to my computer. She picks one up. Law? I nod and her eyebrows raise. Hopefully. She sighs. Corporate, right? Or something like that? I haven't decided yet. I haven't even gotten in. She dips her finger in the ring of condensation and drags it around the tablecloth. Doesn't matter, I guess. I keep quiet while she continues. Miss Maki, you and Sir Benjo and your family back home in Manila, you'll probably be okay. People like him, she jerks her head at the road. They won't bother you. They won't try. Random bastards won't try. If anything happens, someone would at least attempt to solve it. That's not true, I say. Even stars and athletes and people from, people with power, sometimes they get attacked. Sometimes their cases don't get solved, too. Look at a... Nita Blanca. You don't understand, she says with a tired smile. It's different here. We get used to it. Violence can be personal, but it can also be random. And if you always wait for justice, you might lose too much. Besides, if what you're saying is true, then why would you ever want to study something so useless? She looks up from her water tracing. Eyes calm and piercing. My mouth feels dry. I take a sip from my Coke. I want to help, I say. But it's true. I'm probably not going into criminal law. There's too much shit, too much stress in it. I'm not cut out to become a burning defender of justice. It's too easy to get disillusioned. Or at least that's what my parents tell me and they've both been practicing for years. Same reason you're doing nursing, right? Senya nods.
slowly, but with more deliberation than I could ever muster. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I stay at the Carinderia until evening, when the flickering fluorescent no longer helps. There's still a faint streak of pink way in the distance, but I use the camera flash of my phone to light my path as I walk back to Tito Benjo's because there are no streetlights and too many potholes. Halfway there, I hear violent retching somewhere ahead of me on the dark path. The local alcohol is cheap and goes straight to one's liver. Tito Benjo asks me to drink with him every now and then. It's pretty awful, but I don't dare turn my host down. I scoot to the other side of the road and hold my phone up. A man is doubled over. The wet chunks of his dinner splatter the ground while he heaves. Disgusted, I try to edge past him, but my light catches the mess he made on the ground. And I see tiny black balls of what looks like hair, stained red with blood. He vomits again, more dark balls splat on the ground, with shiny pink things that look like slugs or tongues. The man glances up, panting. You, he manages, one hand gripping his bare stomach. What the fuck did you do? I see a knife poking out of his shorts and realize who he is. I forget to answer his question in a spasm of panic because he wretches again. Even if he's a fucker, if he's barfing out his intestines, I have to do something. Do you need- He flings me a look of loathing, spits, then wipes his mouth, staggering away. I cringe, relieved and grossed out. Already, a trail of ants is approaching the vomit, sifting through it. Feeling sick, I run the rest of the way back. 
Tito Benjo laughs. Puking out hairballs? Like a cat? Tito, I'm serious. Must have eaten something awful for dinner. Tito Benjo shrugs. That kid, he's usually up to no good. Always sleezing. But he's never actually done anything. I remember his look of hate. He carries a knife around. Lots of people do here. You can't stop them. They're usually pretty blunt. He waves it away. How are your studies going? Okay, I guess. If you don't pass your exam, I'll be in trouble with your mom. <laughs> I grin because Tito Benjo laughs too much, and I peck him on the cheek, excusing myself for the evening. Tito Benjo's house has concrete walls. There's no gate, but there are locks on the doors. The path is long and the farm surrounds us and no one would dare. I think of Mangokat and Senya in their hut, Edna and her parents in their own hut, and that drunk raving through the night with a knife in his hand and the smell of vomit and blood hanging off him. Edna appears in our kitchen the next day while I'm ladling out Dinola's soup. Mama says you're going back at the end of this week? Yep. You didn't tell me. There are a few kids in this village. I realize that I'm a rare friend of Edna's, too. I'm sorry, I thought you knew. I pass her a bowl of soup. I'll come back next summer, I say. But I won't have an exam to pass then, and I'll probably have summer class. I'll try to come back next summer. Try, okay? I nod. We sip our soup. Ate Senya says we could visit her house later. She's making maíz con hielo. Oh, good, I blurt out. So he hadn't gotten to her. It made sense he could barely walk, but I was uneasy all night anyway. Crazy ex-boyfriends were the stuff of too many fucked up homicide cases. So you wanna go? Uh, uh. I'm not sure I want to see Senya, because she clearly has issues with me. My privilege, my idealism, maybe even just how I talk. The memory of her sharp gaze makes me nervous. Still, it's difficult to say no to Edna's wheedling, especially when we have such little time left together. It's maíz con hielo, she pleads. Okay, okay. On our way to Mangogats, I find my eyes trailing the ground, both hoping and not hoping to find proof of last night's encounter. A part of the road has vomit, but in daylight, the color is more watermelon pink, nothing like blood at all. There are no hairballs. Edna skips over the trail of ants creeping across the mess. If she finds nothing weird, then neither do I. Senya is crushing ice in plastic cups when we arrive. She hands us both knives so we can help. It's a burning day, and the ice is already half melted by the time we pour condensed milk and corn kernels into it. We don't talk much, sitting on the steps of her house, eating our frozen treats. There's one moment when I act ridiculous, closing my eyes. I don't hear cars or smell pollution or feel like someone's about to snatch my phone out of my pocket. It's another one of those times where the province feels peaceful, otherworldly, and I'm glad it's not Manila. I'm glad the freeways don't extend to here. I'm glad I don't feel the need to take a selfie with the cup in my hands and give it the appropriate hashtag. Edna sings a song in Batangueño, which I vaguely understand as being about a river. And Senya joins in during the chorus, winding her hair into a braid over her shoulder. Mang Ogat emerges from the trees blocking our view of the path. 
We're standing to greet him when he shouts for help. He's dragging something. Someone. I get to him first and let him drape the arm of the person he's carrying over my shoulders. I don't ask, just move. Sednya and Edna watch as we climb up the short steps and deposit the person on Mung Okat's narrow wooden bed. The man stirs, moans. There are open sores on his cheeks and neck, all down his arms and over his chest. Cuts and scrapes that gleam raw, wet and weeping. The wounds are all colors, a grisly sunburst spectrum of red, yellow, orange, purple, black, some already graying at the edges. Mangokat picks a bottle off his workbench, full of wood chips and herbs suspended in oil. A strong smell of rum leaks out when he opens it. He pours the liquid over the patient's chest, smearing it into the wounds. The patient makes a gargling noise, thick with pain. Te, do you need help? Senya asks. Mangokat glances up and shakes his head. His eyes linger on Senya's, then turn to mine. But I can't decipher the look in them. I think you girls should go. It takes effort for me to walk away. I can't tear my eyes from the sight of the man, or stop noticing the smell of his skin, warm and slick with fluid from his wounds. There are weeping sores even on the soles of his feet. And before I turn around completely, I see a black bug crawl out of his wound, or next to it? Atemaki, Edna calls. I sprint down the steps. We reach the river. I lean over the bank, knees against my chest, willing myself not to retch. The thought of vomiting makes me think of the man from the previous night again. I stare at the water, watch my reflection stare back. Who was it? Edna asks. I couldn't tell, Senya says. I turn to look at her. She sits cross-legged, fingers twiddling the grass. His face was messed up. I don't think even Tay can fix that kind of curse. Curse? I ask, stomach clenching as I stand. That was a curse? It looks like he got, I don't know, sliced by tons of invisible knives. Edna and Senya look at each other, then back at me, almost pityingly. It's a mamba barang, Senya says. I guess you wouldn't encounter that in Manila. Mamba barang? What the fuck is that? They curse people, Edna answers. I forgot that I shouldn't swear around kids, but she doesn't seem to care. She's pulling up little blades of grass. They're like the opposite of Mangokat. You can bring them money or things they want, and they'll curse your enemies. Or sometimes they'll curse people just because. I wonder why she won't look at me as she says it. Witches? Edna shrugs. There's a look on her face that I've never seen before, not from her. Pity tinged with judgment. Her smart atemake knows nothing. They can be boys, too. What the hell? There's someone like that in the village and you just, haven't they ever tried catching the person? The mamba barang won't get caught, Senya says, still with that gentle voice. It's not like there's only one. If they were bound out, the village would murder them, or at least send them away. They're careful. They won't let others talk. I remember how the man yesterday had glared. How it wasn't only rage, but a kind of fear in his crazed expression. What the fuck did you do? With a start, I realized it was him, surely, mutilated by someone's dark magic. What was he accusing me of? It's true, I warned him. 
I wanted him restrained somehow, but I only meant my family name. The idea of hurting someone this way makes me shudder. It's not me, I say. There's a moment of silence. Then Senya laughs, doubled over, shrill and gasping. It's the loudest sound I've heard her make. Her laughter makes me feel ridiculous. But I crack a smile. Because if she thinks it's impossible, it must be. Of course not, Miss Maki, she says. You'll use the law instead, right? I stare at her, mouth open, fighting the urge to slap her. I'm trying in my own way. Her gaze levels mine. You wouldn't do a thing like that, she says, back to her soft voice, like something escaping a dream. You wouldn't dare, her eyes say. And anyway... Why would you ever need to? Tito Benjo and I eat in the Corinderia that evening, because Elingdin Dai isn't feeling well and can't make us dinner. I push around the stewed goat on my plate, while Tito Benjo watches a basketball game on the oversaturated TV. I'm about to ask if I can go home, when Edna crashes into our table. The dim light shows tears streaked across her face. Ademaki, governor, Itaius, Itaius. We run, with Tito Benjo puffing behind us. Edna stops in the goat field outside the house. I don't need light to know that there's blood everywhere. I smell it rising from the grass. And when I kneel down beside a Lingden Dai, crying as she cradles Manong Edgar on her lap, I feel it. Slick against my knees. Who? I ask, but Edna is shaking her head. They don't know. They have no idea. I'll get the car, Tito Benjo says, voice pinched. He charges off. Is he still alive? Edna asks. I hold my hand over his nose, expecting the worst. He's breathing, just barely. Edna, Manang. Senya appears at the edge of the field, with Mang Ogat behind her, both of them running. When they reach us, Mang Ogat kneels across me, and Senya pulls Edna into her arms. We got your text, but what happened? Manong, Manong, please. Alingdin Dai breathes, clutching Mang Ogat's hand. Her voice wobbles. He needs a hospital, Mangokat says. This isn't something my healing will work on. A LinkedIn Dai draws in a heavy breath, just as Tito Benjo's car comes up the road. He brings it right up to the fence, then hurries over. Carefully, he and Mangokat lift Manong Edgar to the car. A LinkedIn Dai wipes her eyes and climbs in after them. You stay and watch Edna, Tito Benjo says. I nod, hands still wet with blood, shaking, shaken. Edna curls up beside me on my bed, tears streaming out of her eyes. I wrap my arms around her narrow shoulders, hyper aware that I'm the only adult in the house. Atemaki, Edna murmurs. Voice weak from misery and sobbing. We have to find out who did it. Yes, shh, shh, it's going to be okay. We have to make them sorry, she adds. The words are menacing, but there's no heat to them. She's merely saying what she wants, like a kid. But she is a kid. I pat her head already worried that the perpetrator will get away, and how awful that would be. Yes. You'll help, right, Atemaki? Of course. Promise? Promise, I say. Because if I can't do anything, I can at least try to comfort her. Let her know I'm here. 
quiet now. We'll hear from them in the morning. It's difficult to sleep. I keep turning it over in my mind. Why Manung Edgar? He was harmless, just tending the goats and smiling at everyone. And it's clear, now, that being associated with Tito Benjo won't necessarily spare anyone. So who did it? Someone drunk? High? Someone with revenge on their mind? You don't understand. It's different here. We get used to it. For no reason? I pull my blanket up to my chin and let my heart drum me to sleep. Ademaki, Edna whispers. I jerk upright. It's still dark outside. The moon hovers outside our window, bloated, dull silver. What is it? Come on. Edna stands from where she was crouched next to my bed. We've got to hurry. She starts out the door. I trip out of bed, pull on my slippers, and follow her. She walks down the path, steady and sure, and crosses the goat fields into a thicket of trees, the forest outside our farm. I'm afraid I'll lose her in the darkness, so I walk faster, until I'm in step with her. After minutes of nothing, I see a dim fire blazing ahead, the glow of several candles beneath a balete tree with dead, drooping branches. I blink to focus. Someone is crouched before the candle flame, wearing a sky-blue skirt, hair hanging wild over her shoulders. She sees us and holds a finger to her lips as we come closer. Her eyes are half-lidded, glazed with a strange ecstasy. It's not cold, but I start shaking anyway. Edna presses forward, fearless. I want to protect her, but she doesn't need it. I want to run away. Edna pulls me to sit beside her, and I don't resist. Senya holds out her hand. There are fat beetles on it, the same kind I'd seen in her house. I am not afraid of bugs, but the revulsion in me is so strong that I gag. Her finger skims their shells, and she makes a clucking sound in the back of her throat. Then she drops them onto her lap, and they rove around in lazy circles. She withdraws something from her shirt pocket. It's a needle with white thread running through it, ghostly in the moonlight. She picks up a bug and pierces it with the thread. I dig my fingers into my palm. She pierces the bug again and again. There is no sound, but with each movement of Senya's stabbing hand, I feel like covering my ears, like there's screaming in my skull. Screaming, laughing, crying, screeching. It's worse than the worst headache. My breath comes out in sharp fragments, and I touch the skin beneath my left ear. Surprised there's no blood leaking out of it. She does this to the two other bugs, then sets them down on the floor. Instead of curling up or twitching to death, the bugs appear to be unharmed. They begin moving in a line, pale threads strung between their black bodies. And that's when I notice the cloth doll lying next to the candles. The bugs burrow their way into it. Senya watches, hands folded in her lap. We all watch. The doll flops back and forth as the bugs tear their way through it. Then, from the same holes they bore in, the bugs burrow their way out. Senya whispers to them, or to us, or to the candle flame. And their black shapes move into the darkness through blades of grass, thread trailing behind them. The sounds in my head slowly die away. Senya sighs. It's the first human sound I've heard in what feels like forever. She looks drained 
the bags under her eyes alarming. But her mouth is drawn into a peaceful smile. Edna reaches out her hand towards Senya, and Senya takes it. After a moment, Edna reaches out a hand to me, and I reach out for Senya's, closing the circle. Her fingers are slim and cool in my grasp. I don't know what I've become a part of, whether it's a secret I deserve or even want to share in. I witness the fierce concentration in Edna's face, the dreamy anticipation on Senya's, so different from how she is during the day. For a few seconds, her gaze meets mine and she nods toward the maimed doll. What do you think of this, Miss Maki? Our way? I swallow, not sure what to tell her. I want to know what happens with this kind of power. I don't. We stay like that, waiting in the dark, while the candle burns and the village twists and seeds around us. It feels like a long time before the screaming starts, but it could have been minutes. In a village this small, every sound is amplified. There are tears running down Edna's face now, but she just squeezes my hand tighter, and the fury in her eyes is matched only by the serenity of Senya's smile. I look down at my feet. I imagine the skin along my veins cracking apart, gushing with blood, dark beetles crawling out, making their way up my shins, my legs, eating their way into my belly, pouring out of me, trailing my insides with them, slick with blood. I think of the man holding his knife toward Senya. I think of Manong Edgar in the goat field, singing to himself, waving at me. I curl my toes and hold their hands, and we wait until the screams stop. We wait until we are satisfied. My shirt is crusty when I wake up, from Edna's tears and snot. She's rolled away from me and is facing the opposite wall. I can't remember when we came back. I can't remember if we ever left. I fumble for my phone. No messages. I hold it outside the window trying to get a signal. And after a few minutes, there's a ping. Tell Edna Mang Edgar will make it. Thanks. They come home two days later, after the village has found and buried the drunken ass that did it. We'll never learn the motive, if there was one at all. Manong Edgar's head is heavily bandaged, but his laughter when he sees Edna, despite being weaker, is full of warmth. I stop by Mang Ogat's house my last day in town. Edna's sulking, but I've promised to make it up to her by bringing a souvenir from Manila next time. Mangogat and Senya are on the steps, shelling boiled peanuts. I'm heading back to Manila tonight. Manong, thank you again for your help the other day. No more headaches? None. No patience today? Mangogat shakes his head, then stands. That's right. I have something for you. He enters his house and rummages around the bottles on the bench. Senya holds out a handful of shelled peanuts. No, thank you, I say. Ready for your test? Sort of. I'll feel better when I take it. At least it will be over. She laughs as Mang Ogat emerges and hands me a tiny oil-filled bottle. Just rub a bit of this on your head when it hurts, he says. Thank you, Manong. I fumble my pocket. He waves his hand. Don't bother. Just take it, Senya says, to me this time. She stands, puts her bowl of peanuts away, and gives me a quick, awkward hug. Good luck. I'm halfway down the road when I turn back to them, bottle clutched in my hand. Senya gives me a small smile and a wave. I wave back. Something crawls up the side of my neck, perching behind my ear. 
I pinch it between my fingers, hold it away, let it drop to the ground. I see briefly the black thread trailing from its body before it scuttles off to safety. For me, one of the coolest things about consuming a variety of short speculative fiction is when it gives me a glimpse into mythology and folklore from different parts of the world. I always end up feeling like my personal world has grown just a little bit bigger. Ready to go on another incredible journey? How about Born to the Blade, in which two young blade crafters vie for power and their very survival in a treacherous floating world on the brink of war? Or maybe explore a mystery with Dead Air, where a true crime podcaster is roped into a decades-old murder. Both shows are out now, wherever you get your podcasts. So until next time, whatever dimension you're in, safe travels. You're listening to Tales Beyond Time, created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Tales Beyond Time, Episode 31, features Only Unclench Your Hand, written by Isabel Yap. It is produced by Mary Asadolahi and Marco Palmieri, associate produced by Alexis Latshaw, and executive produced by Molly Barton, hosted by Marco Palmieri, and performed by Sura Sue. Audio produced by Tidef Studios. Additional editing by Nicholas Papalio. Cover art by Kindle Thomas. 